Would you take your Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians 2, 17 to chapter 3, verse 13. This is a little bit longer section that I'm going to read today, and I think you'll see how it all fits together as we go through the message this morning. I want to start again, chapter 2, verse 17, and then I'll be reading through chapter 13. But brothers, when we were torn away from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did, again and again. But Satan stopped us. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and God's fellow worker in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. You know quite well that we were destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way as well you know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you and our efforts might have been useless. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live, since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. And now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. And may he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Amen. Let's pray. Father, what a great passage this is. We see in it the heart of the apostle, his love for people, his desire to see them grounded in their faith, walking with Jesus, standing firm in the Lord. We see the hope that he had, the confidence of your return and the difference that that makes in our lives. And so, Father, I pray that as we look at Paul's example this morning, we would be encouraged in our own faith and we would be challenged to live just as he did. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Toward the end of the 19th century, one morning Alfred Nobel woke up, and he was kind of shocked by what he saw in the paper that day. Picked up the local newspaper, and there was his own obituary that had been written there. Now that alone would be a little distressing to see, but he was even more shocked by what it said about him. It said, Alfred Nobel, the inventor of dynamite, 
who died yesterday devised a way for more people to be killed in a war than ever before, and he died a very rich man. Interesting. Well, the newspaper had gotten things mixed up. It was actually Alfred's older brother who had died, but they had put his name there. But the account had a profound effect upon Nobel. He looked at that and he thought, is that how I'm going to be remembered in this world? And he wanted to make a change in his life. He wanted to be known for something other than being the inventor of a weapon of mass destruction, if you will. So he initiated the Nobel Prize, the award for scientists and writers who foster peace. And Nobel said every man ought to have the chance to correct his epitaph in midstream and write a new one. How do you want to be remembered in this life? What do you hope people will say about you when you die? And even more importantly, what will bring you the greatest joy when you stand before the Lord in that final day? You know, when we look at the life of the Apostle Paul, we see that Paul lived his life in a way that would count for eternity. He was so confident of what was going to happen when our Lord returned that he wanted to make the most of his life. He had been given this great mission by the Lord to take the gospel to the Gentiles, to those who had never heard it before, and he would labor with a single-minded purpose to do that, to lift up Jesus Christ, to share the gospel in the face of hardship or suffering, whatever it took. Because one day he would stand before the Lord to give an account for his life. And if we are going to live our life in a way that will count for eternity, we will build it into the lives of others. Because there's only, you know, two things that are going to last beyond this life, and that's people and God's Word. And so we want to make the most of our time to build into the lives of others, to go and make disciples, to help others to know Jesus too. And we can do that in three ways that are shown in this text. The first one is that the Scripture calls us to love one another, and we see that in verses 17 to 20. Paul cared deeply about the Thessalonians, and he did not want to leave them so soon. You remember that they had come from Philippi, and they came to this town of Thessalonica. It was a major city, maybe somewhere between 100, 200,000 people that were there. And Paul went to the synagogue, began to preach. And when he wasn't welcome there, he went out into the marketplace and began to share the good news. And there was an open reception. There were people who heard the gospel and came to know Jesus. And a church was born. But then there were some of the Jews who were angry at that reception who drove him out of the city. And Paul expressed the way that he felt about that here. He said that we were torn away from you for a short time in person, but not in thought. And out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. That, that expression, we were torn away, expresses his anguish and grief over their separation. It's the word that would be used to describe how a parent would feel if their children were taken away from them. 
ripped away from them. Or I thought of the example of Anita Dittman, who was here just a few weeks ago, who was a Holocaust survivor, and she described how she felt when she was in her late teenage years, and she and her mother were arrested by the Nazis because they were Jewish, and they were separated. They were torn away from each other and put into different labor camps. And she described the anguish, the sorrow she felt, and the longing to be with her mom and to keep that communication open between the two of them. That's what Paul was feeling here. And he said, we made every effort to come to you, but Satan stopped us. He doesn't say specifically what prevented him from going. We don't know if it was a legal restraint by the civil authorities who said, you're not welcome here. We don't know if it was simply the opposition by the local Jews and the threat to his life, or was it even an illness? Was it an early occurrence of Paul's thorn in the flesh that would be a recurring problem? We don't know. But whatever it was, it was clear that Satan was behind it, that he was the real enemy. And that's a significant statement that Paul is making here about Satan. I mean, there's many people in our world today who do not believe that Satan is a real personal being. They think that's sort of mythical or that's just sort of an expression of evil. It's not a real person. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches us that Satan is a fallen angel who rebelled against God, who once stood in a position of prominence in that heavenly arena, and he wanted to make himself like God. And he was cast out of heaven and thrown down. And his work in this world is really trying to hinder the gospel from advancing, it is to work against the growth of the church. It's to discourage believers. And he works with the other angels who rebelled along with him. Satan is a foe that we need to recognize and deal with according to the Scripture. And Paul understood the eternal significance of what he was doing. We see that in verses 19 and 20. He asked these questions. He said, for what is our hope? What is it that we are looking forward to in the future? Well, it is the Lord's return. What is our joy? What is it that's going to bring him joy in the presence of the Lord? What would be his crown when he stood before the Lord? And he answers that for us when he says, Is it not you? Is it not you? The word crown in Greek is the word stephanos. And it was the victor's crown that was given to the winner in an athletic competition. I mean, if we were writing this today or if Paul was writing this today, he'd say it's the gold medal. I mean, it's like that Olympic gold medal that is hung around the neck of those who are victors in their event. What Paul is saying here is that the crowning achievement of my life will be to stand before the Lord with you. Man, I love that. The crowning achievement of Paul's life is going to be to stand before the Lord with the Thessalonians. 
with those who had come to know Christ through his ministry. He's saying that that will be better and more lasting than an Olympic gold medal, than the Ryder Cup, than a Super Bowl ring, than anything that this world could give as a prize. And I think of that for all of us. You know, and I think of the joy that comes from being able to work with other people. I have been blessed to be in this community as you're a pastor for 31 years now, and it has been a great joy. And as long as God wants to keep me here, I want to do that faithfully and serve him. If this is the outpost where God has assigned me to be, then I want to be faithful as a shepherd in this community. But I also think of the significant role that each of you play in helping our church to be a healthy church and being a witness for Christ in this community. And I think of the precious conversation that I had with a woman in our church, Lorraine Hasselquist, just before she died. And I've shared this before, but it made a profound impression upon me too that this dear woman who, along with her husband, Carl, helped to start our church, and they were the oldest members who came from Koss that joined with our group of 14 families who were going to begin this new church, and Carl and Lorraine were in their early 60s, and the rest of us were probably in the 20s and 30s, you know, and closer to that age. And Carl and Lorraine thought we needed some, you know, maybe more mature believers with us or a little bit of, of wisdom that comes with age. And they took a step of faith, leaving behind a lot of their friends at the Cost Church to come with this young group of people to begin a new church here. And when I saw Lorraine in the hospital, full of faith, full of courage, ready to go to be with the Lord, she said it was the best decision that Carl and I ever made. It brought them so much joy. They felt so loved and accepted by the team of people that went out from that church. They took such joy in what happened as they watched this church grow and God do a work in our community. It was the best decision they ever made. And I would pray that that would be true for you too, that you would find great joy and delight in the fellowship of this church, in being part of the mission that God has called us to, to go and make disciples of all nations. Because as you love one another, as you join in prayer, as you give, as you support, you invest and you share in the work. The second thing that God calls us to do in this passage is to strengthen and encourage one another. And we see that in verses 1 to 5. Paul goes on to say that when we could stand it no longer, I mean, he's so anxious, wondering what's going on with those new believers. Are they standing firm? Has Satan somehow tempted them? Are they falling away from the faith? Have they concluded that maybe this just isn't worth it? You know, this being a Christian, this following Jesus, it's not worth it. Look at all the trouble that it's brought upon us. Look at all these enemies that are opposed to us. And Paul is worried that they might chuck it and walk away from the faith. And so he said when he could stand it no longer, they chose to send Timothy, his beloved disciple, even if it meant that Paul would be alone himself. 
Paul was willing to send this partner in ministry, this teammate, even though he could use them there in Athens where he was, even though Timothy was an encouragement to Paul, he was saying, Timothy, I got to know. We got to find out how it's going with those believers. And Timothy was a Greek. He could travel more easily than Paul. He could fly under the radar a little easily or easier, if you will. And he would find out how they were doing. His mission, his assignment from Paul was to encourage and strengthen these new believers, these new followers of Christ. He would strengthen them through his teaching, helping them to understand the gospel, helping them to understand their suffering, bringing the word of God to them to strengthen their faith. And he would encourage them. He would lift them up. He would um, share with them the hope that we have in Christ. And when you encourage someone, what you're trying to do is to help them with their attitude or perspective, to look at things through God's eyes. And Timothy would do both, strengthen and encourage them. Paul had forewarned them about the trials and the persecution that they would experience. Paul never said to any of these new believers that if you accept Christ, all your problems will be solved and life's going to be great. He didn't say that. You know, today, sadly, there are American preachers who preach a false gospel, a gospel of health and prosperity that wants to say to people that if you accept Christ, you know, you're going to be healthy. If you're sick, well, that's you got a lack of faith. Uh, God wants you to be prosperous. He wants you to drive the nicest vehicles and have all this money and all those things. That is an American heresy. And sadly, it is being exported. And I see it when I go to Latin America. And I see preachers there who are preaching this same thing. In Guatemala, there is a pretty well-known pastor who is in this prosperity gospel mold. And uh, some of the true believers there actually said it's kind of ironic that his last name is Cash. (laughs) Pastor Cash. And he preaches a false gospel. And he is fleecing the flock. Paul comes and he tells the believers just the opposite. He said, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There is suffering that comes because you will be living in a way that is contrary to the world's values. And the only reason we haven't experienced it as much in the United States is because we've lived in a country that was founded on Christian principles. There were a significant number of Christians who were there in the formation of our nation. Our country experienced the first and second great awakening where God in his grace did a profound work in the hearts of many, many people whose lives were changed by the gospel. But that's changing in our country. And let me give you a couple examples of that. And uh, please, in these examples, I am not endorsing one political party or the other. I'm not saying that. I'm just using these as examples because they're out there right now. There's one political commercial that is being shown on on television right now that pictures a young couple 
mocking a candidate for political office because he believes that the killing of unborn children is wrong and that marriage is something that should be between a man and a woman. And the culture has changed so much that they, they really mock this position at all. And they say, you know, what? is this guy stuck in the 50s? You know, is he in kind of a time warp? You know, I mean, that's so old-fashioned, that's so passe. And it shows how the culture is changing. Or I think of this article that was in the Pioneer Press in May of this year, and it was uh, titled, A Confession of Liberal Intolerance. It was written by a guy who would call himself a liberal and a Democrat, and he wrote about the prejudice, the bias that there is in academia. Here's what he said. He said, we progressives believe in diversity And we want women, blacks, Latinos, gays, and Muslims at the table as long as they aren't conservative. Universities are the bedrock of progressive values, but the one kind of diversity that universities disregard is ideological and religious. We're fine with people who don't look like us as long as they think like us. And he gave the example of a man named George Yancey, who's a sociologist, and he's a black, and he is an evangelical. And George said this. He said, outside of academia, I face more problems as a black, he told me. But inside academia, I face more problems as a Christian, and it is not even close. Now, that's a pretty profound statement that he's making. That I have more problems barriers, more obstacles that are set up before me in the university because I'm an evangelical than I do in our society because I am black. The study found a proportion of professors in the humanities who are conservatives today ranges between 6 and 11%. In the social sciences, it's between 7 and 9%. There are some conservatives in science and economics but they are virtually an endangered species in fields like anthropology, sociology, history, and literature. One study found that only 2% of university professors in those fields are conservatives. In contrast, some 18% of social scientists say that they are Marxist. So it's easier to find a Marxist in the university in some disciplines than it is to find a conservative. When it comes to hiring, the discrimination that is there is quite evidenced. By their own admission, they said that they would be less likely to hire someone for a job in the university if they found out that they were conservative. 30% less likely to hire somebody if they're conservative. But the discrimination becomes worse if the applicant is an evangelical Christian. According to the ANSI study, 59% of anthropologists, 53% of English professors would be less likely to hire someone if they found out they were an evangelical. And he said the condescension toward evangelicals echoes the patronizing attitude people have had toward racial minorities. They consider them politically unsophisticated, lacking education, angry, bitter, emotional, poor. It's pretty shocking. 
But I was glad to see that he was willing to admit the bias that was there in the university and to recognize that as a problem. Because if we are not open to have all points of view at the table, we're not going to get anywhere. And today in our universities, we see that. Discrimination, persecution can take different forms. It may be in hiring practices. It may be if you are a teacher, you're being asked to teach something that is an agenda that you don't agree with. It might be that there will come this day when they will put churches in the target and say that unless you are willing to teach what we now require, that you will lose your tax-exempt status. There's all kinds of pressures that may come that are different. They're not, you know, say a threat on your life, whether you're going to live and die like our brothers and sisters face in some parts of the world. But there can be pressures that relate to your job, your future plans, your worship, your church, your involvement in evangelical activities. When I look at this passage, I want to comment on one other thing that was here as well. Paul was willing to send Timothy to see the Thessalonians. And that was a sacrifice on his part. And what I want you to see in Paul's life is that Paul was more concerned about the church than he was his personal needs. I mean, the question that we need to ask at times of ourselves is, what is best for the church? What is best for the church? When we think about the future, when we think about programs, when we think about our worship, when we think about the way that we do ministry, and we think about reaching the next generation for Christ, what is best for the church? And that's why sometimes we make decisions that, you know, may go against maybe a preference that one person may have or another person may have because we're thinking toward the future. And we're thinking, what is going to be the best way to bring the gospel to this next generation? What is it that we can do to kind of lower those barriers that might be there so that they can hear the gospel and come into a relationship with Christ? It is not compromising the gospel in any way. We teach the scripture faithfully. But when we think about music, we think about our worship, we think about small groups, we think about things that we do focus on, we want to do it with that question in mind. What is best for the church? It's an other-centered look at ministry that thinks about other people as more important than ourselves. And thirdly, we see in the example of Paul the need to pray for one another, and we see that in verses 6 to 13. In verse 6, Paul says that Timothy has now just come to us from you, and he has brought a wonderful report. It was a great answer to Paul's prayers. The Thessalonians were growing in faith and love. They longed to see Paul also. They shared that they had fond memories of their time together. And most of all, they were standing firm in the Lord. And Paul says, how can we thank God enough for you and the joy that you have brought to us? He tells them that night and day we have been praying that we might see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. 
Paul wanted to come to them to encourage and instruct them. And that's really why this letter was written. Timothy obviously came back with some questions, some areas of concern that they had. And in particular, they had questions about the coming of the Lord and what that day would be like, what would it mean. And so in both 1 and 2 Thessalonians, Paul tries to answer those questions. Do you hear the relief that Paul felt? He knew that the Lord had done a great work. And he was so encouraged, so excited, that in verse 8 he said, For now we really live, since you are standing firm in the Lord. For many years now, we have been helping and supporting a church in Guatemala in a village called Kiakish. And it started many years ago when Mike, Mike Hirsch was looking for a place where he could take his daughter on a mission trip. And he came across a missionary that was working there, Terry Luttrell, and contacted her, and a door opened up that he could go down and do some dental work as a ministry. And through his efforts and those who went with him, we came in contact with this church. And as that ministry grew through the years, we sent other teams down there and built a relationship, and we got to know Pastor Obispo. Pastor Obispo is in an area, this valley, where it's, um, uh, they are indigenous people, they're descendants of the Mayans, they are poor, they're an area that's kind of marginalized even in Guatemala, and they were living in darkness. I mean, they were hearing a gospel of works, if you will, a salvation by works, by efforts, never knowing if you could ever do enough to earn your salvation. And what happened over time was they heard a gospel of grace, and Obispo got it, and his heart and his life were changed. Well, once a month, I make a phone call and talk with Pastor Obispo, and Gene Keldow translates, Jim Melko is there, and we talk to Obispo, and we do this to encourage him, to find out how it's going, to be able to pray for their work or offer support that we can. We recently sent money from our church so they could purchase Bibles for an outreach event that they were doing, and they are so faithful to preach the gospel, to reach out in the neighboring communities, to share the love of Christ with them. And I got to tell you, here we are. We're making these phone calls to encourage them, and I'm the one who every time, I mean, all three of us would say this, we leave encouraged by their faithfulness, and I value their prayers for us. And I have no doubt that when we share requests with them, that they are sitting down and they are gathering in their church and they are praying for what is happening at Lagos Libres, as they call us. And they're praying that God would bless us as well. That's how Paul felt about these Thessalonians. Here he is, he's praying, he's pouring his heart out for them, he's wanting to encourage them. And what happens? He hears what God has been doing there and he hears this report and he is energized by it. He's lifted up. And what we see in verses 11 to 13 at the end of this passage is specifically the things that Paul was praying and that he would continue to pray. And this prayer focuses on everything that he has just said. Paul said, we are praying that the Lord would clear a way for us 
to have a return visit. We want to come and see you. We are praying that your love for one another and for everyone else will continue to grow and overflow, that they would even love their enemies in the name of Jesus. And we pray that their faith would be strengthened so that they would be holy and blameless when our Lord Jesus returns. What a great prayer. What a great prayer for people. You know, when we look at this passage, these are all things that we can do. The Bible calls us to love one another, calls us to strengthen and encourage one another, to share what God is doing, to lift up, to teach, to share the word, and to pray for one another, specifically according to the will of God. Sometimes we get that a little mixed up, and sometimes we try to do some one another's for people that really aren't there in Scripture. Ray Ortland is a pastor who came up with a list I'm going to show you of 15 one another's that really aren't our job to do. He said, sometimes we try to sanctify one another. Can you uh, put this up? Go ahead, go through those, and then go to this. He said, the Scripture doesn't call us to sanctify one another. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't call us to humble one another. Again, that's the work of God. He doesn't call us to pressure one another or embarrass one another, to corner one another, to interrupt one another, to defeat one another or sacrifice one another, to shame one another or judge one another, to run one another's lives or confess one another's sins or intensify one another's suffering, or point out one another's failings. No, he calls us to love. He calls us to encourage. And he calls us to pray for one another. And if we are going to make our life count for eternity, then we will do these things. Make your life count for eternity by building into the lives of others. Let's pray. Father, this is a good word, a word that we need to hear and a word that I thank you that so many in our church have been faithfully doing. God, we see you at work and we need one another. We need the prayer support, especially when we are struggling or hurting. We need the encouragement, a good word, a timely word that lifts us up or that changes our perspective and helps us to put our eyes back on you. We need people who will love us just as we are and help us to grow in our relationship with you. And may those qualities characterize our church. In Jesus' name, amen.